This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Good morning. I've been thinking about hope for the last few months, I think. Um, And so when Travis said, just preach on whatever for Christmas, uh, I said, well, I'm going to preach on hope. And, and I think Christmas is about hope. Like, it's quite a hopeful time, a hope-filled season. There's this kind of sense of anticipation throughout the month of December and November and October sometimes, uh, building up to Christmas. They put up all the decorations in the shopping centers. Uh, you put up your decorations in your home a bit after the shopping centers do it. You know, we, we, we fill up our social calendar, attending Christmas parties, Christmas drinks, Christmas carols, Christmas barefoot bowls, whatever it is, there's this sense of anticipation building and building and building and building until that big day on the 25th, uh, the big kind of hoped for Christmas morning. I think especially if you're a kid, I mean, they all just left. But if there's any of you here, uh, if you're a kid, you know about that sense of anticipation, trying to fall asleep on Christmas Eve, knowing there are all of those presents under the tree and all of that yummy food in the fridge, and you just can't sleep from the anticipation of it. That is hope. Hope is looking forward to something living in anticipation of something. Psychologists tell me that hope is something that all humans need to flourish, psychologically. We need hope to live fulfilling lives. Even in the midst of hardship, to get you through, you need to have some kind of sense in your soul This hard time is not forever. It will end and things will get better. And if you don't have that hope, it makes it a thousand times harder to face up to that hard time. So, that's why Christmas is about hope. And so I thought I'll I'll pull out a, a classic Christmas Bible reading for this morning, Psalm 89, Uh, You've heard that preached Christmas before, haven't you? No. (laughs) Um, I think this is a Christmas psalm, but I don't think I've ever preached it at Christmas. I don't think I've ever heard anyone else preach it at Christmas. It's certainly a psalm that wrestles with the concept of hope. Um, And Matt got us started earlier during the worship time. I hope you were paying attention. I didn't see very many people holding their Bibles as they sang. Uh, But you can pull it out now and maybe have a little revision of the first eight verses, because we've already had them read. Uh, If you were watching, uh, you'd know that those verses kind of serve as a bit of an intro to what is quite a long song. Uh, This psalm is 52 verses long, and those first eight uh, is kind of this celebratory opening, uh, this worship time. So I thought, I'll ask Matt if he'll read those for us as part of our worship time together, rather than me preaching on them. So I'm going to jump in at verse 9. You rule over the surging sea. 
When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab. That's not Rahab with the walls of Jericho. This is another name for Egypt. Oh, yeah. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong, your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness, for you are their glory and strength. And by your favor, you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. So the psalm, the psalmist, the author, is celebrating the power of God and the righteousness of God and the faithfulness of God and the justice. These are God's characteristics. Uh, There's this kind of poetic exploration of the various character traits of God. Uh, He starts out in in those first couple of verses by celebrating the fact that God is a God who is in control, even in control of the surging sea. Uh, And he thinks particularly and kind of uh, has this allusion to the Egyptians uh, and to the Israelites being saved out of Egypt when God uh, took control of the sea and, and parted the sea that the people could walk through on dry land and escape the clutches of Egypt. Everything that exists is in God's control and he celebrates uh, the creation. The heavens are yours and also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. The north and the south, the mountains, the valleys, all these things exist to display God's goodness. They are a reflection of who he is. Uh, in fact, the psalmist goes so far as to say that they sing for joy at your name. Uh, Tabor and Hermon are not people singing. These are mountains singing. It's very poetic. It's very nice. If you walk in the light of God's presence, you are walking on the foundation of righteousness and justice and being led on into his love and faithfulness. These aren't attributes of God's character picked at random. The author of this psalm is painting a picture of why God is someone who we can put our hope in. These attributes are the key to our hope. For the Israelites, this psalm is reminding them, you you need to remember who our God is. Think of our history. Think of how we were saved out of Egypt all those years ago. Look at the creation. Look at the land that we live in. The, The mountains and the valleys and the sky and the sea. This psalm was written a long, long time after the whole Moses and Pharaoh and Egypt thing. 
Uh, in fact, this psalm was written at one of the darkest times in Israel's history, during the exile in Babylon. God's people had been defeated by the Babylonians and taken into exile, and Jerusalem destroyed and lying in ruins, and this psalm is trying to give them a song they can sing that will give them, remind them that there is still hope. And so for us today, as we read this psalm a couple of thousand years later, we can remember who God is, just like they did. We can, we can listen to this psalm and be reminded of the character of our God. And we have an advantage. We have an extra insight into the character of God because we have seen God revealed not just in his actions in history, not just in the creation in the world that he has made, but we have seen the character of God most perfectly expressed in his son Jesus. That's Christmas. I told you it was a Christmas psalm. We can remember the character of God as we look at the face of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. God's character perfectly fleshed out for the world to see. Here is a man who is humble, loving, forgiving, powerful, strong, merciful. Here is a man who calls out the powerful who misuse their power, who cares for the sick and the poor and the outcast, who teaches everyone what is right and how to live right. And he goes and dies on a cross for the sins of the world. This is the character of this God. It's the same God. This is what God looks like. So if, like the people who first sang this psalm when it was first written two and a half thousand years ago, if you are in a place, in a time in your life where you are lacking hope, if you're up against it, remember who God is. You can read this book. This is a wellspring of hope, full of stories, full of history, of God's provision, of God's rescue, of God's protection, of God living consistently with who he is in the way that he acts in the world, his love for his people, and most of all, to see the image of God in his son Jesus. This place, this book is the place you can go for hope. But that's not the whole psalm. If you've got it in front of you, you can see we're only just starting. Let's read the next section, 19 to 37. This is a big section. Are you ready? Strap in. Once you spoke in a vision... To your faithful people you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him. And through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my saviour. And I will appoint him 
to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. It would have been enough, I think, in my opinion, it would have been enough for God to simply reveal who he is to us, to show us again and again and again how consistently he is who he is, to reveal his character in this book, in this record of everything he said and done. But God in his love and mercy, knowing just how desperate human beings can be for more hope, has gone one step further and made promises to us. Have you ever thought about it like that? The promises of God. He doesn't have to make promises. He knows what he is going to do, and he knows how consistent that is with his character, but he chooses to tell us, to let us know, to reassure us that there is a plan, that there is a promise. It gives clarity to our hope. And this psalm is focused on a particular one of God's many promises, or a set of promises, I suppose. The promises that he made to King David. Uh, If you want to read that promise in its original form, as it was given by the prophet Nathan, uh, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But the psalmist here is kind of expanding on it and, and, and turning into a song. Uh, taking a little bit of creative license at times, but he's kind of extending the original words and, and sprinkling in echoes of the words that he's already used in verses 1 to 18. If you're a poetry nerd, uh, you can go with a highlighter uh, and find the links in these verses, 19 to 37, with 1 to 18, and the kind of repeated refrains and, and repeated imagery uh, that the poet is using to draw our attention to the way in which the promises of God are aligned with, are an expression of the character of God. Uh, I'll pull out a few of you, a few for you to get you started with your highlighter. In verse 13, the psalmist uh, talks about the strength of God's arm. Uh, And in verse 21, talks about the strength of God's arm being on the king. Uh, The faithful love of God is introduced right at the top in verses 1 and 2, and then it's promised specifically to the king in verse 24. Uh, We see that God rules over the sea in verse 9, and the king rules over the sea in verse 25. The skies praise the wonders of God in verse 5, and the throne of the king endures like the sun, established forever like the moon in the sky in verse 37. And there's more. I just thought I'd pull out. A few for you. There's this sense that the promises of God are specific words of hope 
built on the foundation of God's characteristic faithfulness. The promises of God are specific words of hope built on the foundation of God's characteristic faithfulness. God makes sure promises. God is trustworthy. We can cling on to his sure promises even when so much else in our world is falling apart around us. And actually, that's what is happening between the lines in this psalm. This psalm is a reminder of the promises of God to provide them a king, a Messiah, the anointed one, the king from David's descendants, the eternal king. And we, at Christmas time, are celebrating that this promise was kept, kept in a remarkable way, that a descendant of David was born in a stable and placed in a manger, not born in the palace, not born with fanfare, but still fulfilling this hope, this expectation in an unexpected way. And God has made special promises to us, too. Do you know the promises of God? I've got a few here just to remind you, just in case you don't know. God has promised salvation to any who put their trust in Jesus. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be smart enough. You just have to trust Jesus. And he promises salvation. He has promised us new life in Jesus, eternal life, life that goes on and on forever. He has promised us every spiritual blessing through Christ, given in the person of his Holy Spirit, who he has promised will come and dwell in every believer's heart. He has promised to finish the work that he started in us to transform us into the likeness of his Son. He has promised us peace in our hearts, a peace that transcends understanding. Jesus promises us abundant life, eternal life that is guaranteed, that cannot be lost or taken from us. And he has promised that he will come again. He will come back and make all things new. He will come back and complete his kingdom work to make an end to all suffering and pain. I could go on, but I think that's enough for this morning. That's a lot of promises. These are good promises, and we can hold on to these promises. They give us hope. Let's read on. But... You have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defied his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword 
and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all humanity. Who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love, which you, in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Like I said, the context of this psalm, in all of its hopefulness, is the context of hopelessness, the context of expectations not met, of despair. The psalmist is despairing that even though God made all those great promises to King David that his descendants would be on the throne forever and ever, where are they now? There's no throne, there's no palace, there's no temple, there's no city, there's no king. The king is dead. They're ruled by foreigners. They're off in exile in Babylon. It's all fallen apart. And the psalmist complains. And he asks question after question after question. And these questions are pretty accusatory. Did you notice that? That repeated word, you, you, you did this. You didn't keep your promise. You destroyed the throne. You let our king down. You let us down. And he asks this question in verse 46. How long, Lord? How long? And he tells God, remember your promises. Remember us. Don't forget us. Don't forget to keep your promise to us. There's a real hard reality to this psalm that is faced head on and he doesn't hold back and he doesn't mince his words and there's no kind of Pollyannaisms going on here. This is like all but one verse short of the end of the psalm. Just these questions, just this, what is going on, God? I love that about the Psalms, actually, the way that they give us permission to be real, to be raw, to be authentic about how we feel about God. Because sometimes you read all the, all the promises and you read all the hope and it sounds really nice, but it's not your experience. And you just want to say, God, this isn't fair, this isn't right. What are you doing? Where are you? Have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten what you promised to me? I think that the, the challenge of our hope is builds our uh, relationship with God. 
I think that when life is a mess and hope seems to be dwindling, we need to get to a point where we have to start asking these questions. Does God remember? Does He remember His promises? Does He remember us? And this psalm only really gives half an answer in this last verse. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Which is to say, in in spite of not having any of the answers, in spite of hope seemingly gone forever, this psalmist is choosing to praise God. He's saying, I will praise Him, even in the midst of hardship, I will hold on to that last skerrick of hope that the eternal God does not and will not change, that His goodness will shine through in the end, somehow, some day. But we know what happened next. We have the, uh, the hindsight view so such a long time, two and a half thousand years later, we can say God did what he said he would do. God kept all of those promises. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate that God, the God we put our hope in, has proven himself yet again against all odds to be trustworthy. All those complaints, all those unanswered questions that are left hanging at the end of this psalm are resolved in Jesus at Christmas. Jesus, the Messiah, descended from David, the great eternal King given to us at Christmas. When life seems fleeting and futile, when the promises of God seem to have failed, we can know that God keeps his promises. We can choose to keep praising him and putting our hope in him. He comes through every time. He comes through every single time. Every single one of his promises is fulfilled in Jesus or it will be fulfilled in Jesus. The King of Kings, our Saviour, our Lord, our Healer, our Restorer, the one who is coming again to make everything as it should be. So, if your hope is like a flickering candle in the midst of the darkness of despair, hold on. The promised King is coming and He will not fail to keep His every promise. Uh, From 2 Corinthians 1, verses 20 to 22. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so, through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That is, guaranteeing the promises we hope in. Amen.
This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.